Welcome to the Driving Discussions podcast series. Today, we are looking into the feedstock side of the European biofuels market and what developments we are expecting to see in the renewable fuels market in the coming months or even years. Uh, my name is Nick Ganas. I'm in the business development department for oil products and biofuels. And today I'm joined by Dan McKay, one of our European biofuels reporters who primarily focuses on waste feedstocks. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. So my first question to you, as the EU transitions to its recast renewable energy directive, or also known as RED2, which raises renewable blending targets, in particular for feedstocks classified under the Annex 9, how is Argus positioning itself to provide pricing transparency in these markets? Thanks, Nick, for having me. And uh, well, first of all, we launched a new tallow categories one and two assessment at the beginning of February. And this completes our price overview of uh, feedstocks in Red 2's Annex 9 Part B. And also joins our longstanding TME or tallow based biodiesel assessment, which we've been publishing since back in 2013. And we already have an existing market position in UCO and UCOMI markets. And we've been pricing UCO on a CIFARA basis since February 2018 and on an XWorks Netherlands basis since August 2019. I mean, both assessments are now published on a, on a daily basis after our XWorks Netherlands quote moved from a weekly to a daily price at, at the beginning of February. Um, both UCO and TALO categories make up the list for Annex 9 Part B, and they are important feedstocks to monitor because they are key to meeting the higher blending targets as they're classified as, as wastes and are incentivized by European legislation. Although they are capped at 1.7% as part of the share of biofuels and transport, I mean, Germany's Waste-Based Fuels Association, MVAK, actually re recently called out for the cap on the share of waste-based biofuels counted towards the, the country's greenhouse gas reduction quota to be raised to at least 2.5% from next year in 2022 and, and gradually increase further uh, intermittently up until 2030, but there hasn't been uh, much of a response to that so far. I mean, our next step, uh, which we are actually already in the process of at the moment, is looking into the Annex 9 Part A markets. Uh, these markets don't yet have the spot liquidity that we see in others, such as that of Yuko, but certain products have already established themselves as, as, as kind of front runners already. I mean, Annex 9 Part A is also incentivized by European legislation. Uh, at the moment, they don't make up a significant share in the market, but looking forward, by 2030, they are expected to become a staple of the European biofuels market, and they will become integral in renewable targets within the transport sector, and Red 2 being met. Okay, and and speaking of um, 2030, which feedstocks do you think will play a prominent role in EU transport decarbonisation by 2030? Yeah, it's a, I mean it's it's a it's a tough one, but I mean Annex Nine Part A has has a long list of feedstocks. There are 17 different feedstocks on that list, and some of them will be winners, and and some of them won't be. And not all of the options will have the the volumes or technology needed to be used in the immediate or even even the near future. I mean after our ongoing discussions with the market. We believe that the most viable advanced feedstocks are palm oil millepolin, or POMI as it's known, uh, sun-bleached earth oil, SBEO, and tallow. And so these are the advanced markets that we're currently looking at most closely. Uh, as an example, POMI is the wastewater or sludge uh, arising at a palm oil mill in the palm oil production process. The waste is released to a system of POMI ponds to remove solids, oils, and grease before the water is released into waterways. A small oil then settles on top of these ponds, and this can be extracted for biofuel production. POMI hasn't regularly been used in significant volumes in Europe within the biofuels industry because of the high cost of extractions and the high cost of logistics. It's more often been used in the soap oil industry. But now, more and more players in the European market looking at POMI as a feedstock 
for biodiesel and view it as an emerging market. And this is a part of an example because these feedstocks can be difficult to collect and this is a reason these markets have not matured as much yet. But as mandates increase and there is a need for more advanced biofuels, demand will grow. Argus itself has a position as a point of reference for biodiesel in Europe as well. So we cannot solely focus on the feedstock and we will work to ensure that the end product from these advanced feedstocks uh, will be represented as well. Okay, and uh, where do these different products come from? Who are the, the suppliers to the European market? I mean, there's they're still an integral role for domestically produced crops, particularly because of the duties on crop-based biodiesel from major global producers, but it's still fair to expect that a lot of demand will be met with imports. An interesting note uh, that is Svebio, Sweden's Biofuel Association, has actually been an outspoken critic of the, the crop cap within EU legislation and actually responded to the EU consultation about a possible revision of Red 2 by demanding the increased use of arable crops in biofuels production within Europe. I mean, elsewhere, tallow is, is largely a domestic market, so producers source the feedstock from local renderers or traders, whereas the larger and more established yuko market is supplied on a, a global basis. EU yuko imports have been steadily increasing each year as the region produces more and more yukumi on an annual basis as biofuel blending mandates increase. The EU and the UK, when it was part of the bloc, imported 139,000 tonnes of yuko each month in 2019, with just under 44,000 tonnes of that coming from China. Now, Eurostat data for January to November of 2020, which is all that has been released up until now, uh, shows that monthly imports to the EU and UK increased to 153,000 tonnes a month in, in that period. But imports from China actually fell to just under 30,000 tonnes a month. This was primarily due to the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdowns which affected uh, China and reduced collective volumes there. There's also been a shortage of flexi-tank containers available, which UCO was typically transported in um, from China to Europe. This in turn caused elevated freight rates, resulting in the arbitrage for the product from Asia to enter Europe in the final months of last year to close. Trade has still been restricted since the start of this year, but the market expects that the situation will ease in the coming month or so. The lack of product entering the market from Asia as well is a downturn in collective volumes linked to the lockdown and hospitality closures in both Europe and Asia uh, has pushed our UCO Sephardicote to record high levels several times since the, the end of last year, around mid-December. Um, this kind of acutely illustrates how large a source the region, and in particular China, is for the European market. Biodiesel producers have relied more heavily on suppliers from South America and in the Middle East in the past months uh, as an alternative, but there simply isn't enough product from those regions alone to, to satisfy the demand that we have within Europe. We've been following the, the UCO and the UCO markets for quite some time now and, and price both products on a FOB Southeast China basis as well. And then in Southeast Asia, we also look at FOB Malaysia and Indonesia exports. And as the market develops in the Middle East, it's also coming more into the fold as, as a player. Um, you know, we're taking a closer look at that as well. The advanced market that we have currently focused on is also largely supplied from Southeast Asia as well, with us currently having Pullman priced on a FOB Malaysia and FOB Indonesia basis. Uh, great. And um, to, to what extent have these feedstocks been utilized to meet the existing targets under the initial red policy, the one running from 2009 to um, 2020? Well, the, the early growth in uh, renewable fuels uptake was primarily crop-based. Uh, you know, the volume is now capped within EU legislation, but products like vegetable oil-based FAME biodiesel, you know, such as RME and FAME Zero, will continue to be essential in allowing countries to, to reach their targets and, and will remain the dominant share of, of, of market volumes. Again, 
For ethanol, the market has been and still is predominantly crop-based. We represent this through our assessments across different greenhouse gas savings classes. We have one at um, 50 to 60% GHG savings and another at 68%, the latter of which is more representative of the kind of ethanol that's produced within Europe. And we're starting to hear uh, more interestingly advanced our second-generation ethanol market as well in the region, but again, it's still in its very early stages. It is present at the moment in European countries like uh, France and the UK, and more and more European producers are starting to look at how they could delve into the market, and there are even several plants currently being built within Europe, in addition to those that are already in operation. In more recent years, waste-based biodiesel has assumed a much larger share of the market as well, to such an extent that in, in some European countries, such as the Netherlands and the UK, uh, those markets are almost entirely made up of UKME. Ukimi is a popular product that fetches a higher price than the other biodiesels due to the fact that it's waste-based and double-counted under RED2. Yeah. Advanced biofuels still only make up a small part of the total pool, but the incentives for those in the market are clear to see. This is illustrated by the premiums we've uh, already seen for these kinds of products, uh, which can be illustrated in the differentials for our Dutch Renewable Energy Units, or HB, assessments. So the Dutch market has HBCs, which are generated through blending crop-based conventional biofuels, HBOs generated through waste-based biofuels are selling electricity to charge electric vehicles. And finally, HBGs, which are generated through advanced biofuels made from agricultural wastes and residues. As would be expected looking at this, you know, HBOs fetch a premium to HBCs and HBGs fetch a premium to HBOs. But the market share for HBGs isn't all that large at the moment. For example, in 2020, the majority of HBs were uh, generated were still HBOs accounting for around 66% of all of them generated, while HBGs accounted for around a quarter of all the units generated. And the Netherlands Emissions Authority, or the NEA as it's known, actually said that the HBGs were mainly generated from marketing biofuels produced from HOMI, one of the, the ones that we're looking into at the moment. Okay, and um, how do you assess the possibility that different markets uh, and products will compete for a limited pool of, of those non-crop feedstocks? Because um, and a lot has been already written about. Um, you have, for instance, aviation and the maritime markets um, already coming in quite strongly. Uh, maritime markets with uh, a, a late change in Dutch regulation late last year, which looks like there's going to be now a shift of those Part B from Part B of the Annex 9 into more of a Part A, so the advanced feedstock you, ju you just talked about. Um, and, and also the conventional biodiesel market and HVO. So how, how do you assess uh, all, all these different sort of like uh, markets coming in together? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it must be said that, you know, there isn't one means of, of meeting renewable targets. Kind of all industries and products will, will have to play a role in meeting, uh, you know, countries' national mandates and targets. HVO offers a route for suppliers to surpass the blend wall, a limit to most conventional biofuels, and it will be a, a prominent source of emissions reductions in the transport fuel sector through the next decade until the, the end of the RED2 legislation. We currently have three classes of HVO, which we assess, and our, uh, and our pricing is feedstock driven. So class one is produced from food and feed crops. Class two is produced from UCO and POMI. And class three is produced uh, from tallow category three. And the three classes, as I said, were you know, separated based on that RED2 legislation. We're also pricing sustainable aviation fuel or, or biojet at the moment. This is a market where liquid renewable fuels will still have longevity, even as road transport is electrified. Uh, aviation is a market which will be much more challenging and take a longer time to decarbonize. But it's something that the European Commission has had a particular focus on as of late with its uh, Refuel EU aviation initiative. 
And, and basically what that aims to do is it aims to boost the supply and demand for sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, within the EU. Even with the development of the HVO and SAF markets, traditional biodiesel and ethanol will continue to be important, particularly biodiesel where electrification as an alternative is, is more difficult. Uh, there's also a broad range of feedstocks that can be used to produce biodiesel. For example, there is uh, increasing demand in the maritime sector for advanced biodiesel, a traditional esterified product from Annex 9 Part A feedstocks, as you said. Policy is typically designed around feedstock availability, and where it goes will be determined by the price of the feedstocks. Something interesting we've seen since UCO prices have started to hit record highs is that some European biodiesel producers have been priced out of purchasing the feedstock to produce waste-based biodiesel or eucumene. The rise in UCO prices has put pressure on European eucumene production margins, with the spread between eucumene and eucosifara narrowing to average of $380 a ton in January from $450 a ton in December and $586 a ton back in January last year of 2020. That really illustrates the tight production margins at the moment. European producers usually look at a spread around $430 to $450 as a workable margin. HVO and SAF producers are still able to secure healthy enough margins with UCO prices at the current levels. Even so, liquidity in the R HVO market was thin last month as producers, faced with these rising feedstock costs, are unable to reduce their offers, while buyers are unwilling to pay above the value of Dutch and German tickets for Class 2 HVO, which, as I said, you know, produced from UCO and POMI. So coming back to what I originally said at the, the beginning of my answer is really all industries will play an integral role in meeting these targets. It's not just about one of them. All right. Well, that's um, that's that's clear enough. And thanks, uh, Dan, for for sharing uh, all this information and, and, and doing such a deep dive into uh, advanced feedstocks, feedstocks and and the uh, EU um, biodiesel market. Uh, that, that was really interesting. That that wraps up our podcast here. But um, if you're. Um, interested in more podcasts from the driving discussion series, uh, please go to our argusmedia.com slash en slash hubs slash podcast website. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.